So, uh, poor, poor little skinny kid named Ken was picked on constantly by the bullies on the school bus. And they just downright made his life miserable. I mean, they, they teased him, and they beat him up, took his lunch, uh, and any chance they got, they always stole his little brown bag of candy that his mom packed for him to eat on the bus ride home. Uh, and so he would, would get on the bus after school, and one of the bullies would say, Hey, hey Kenny, what you got today? And little Kenny would say, uh, Gumdrops. So one of the bullies would snatch up that bag and gulp them straight down. Next day, the same thing. Kenny got on the bus. One of the bullies said, Hey, Kenny, what you got today? This time, Kenny says, Good and plenties. Another bully snatched that bag and gulped him straight down. This went on and on and on until little Kenny really just could not take it anymore. His teacher noticed that he was kind of down in the dumps. And so to cheer him up, the teacher told him he could be in charge of taking care of the class pet that week, which was a cute little Welsh rabbit. Uh, and then he needed to feed it, and, and to water it, and, and to scoop out his bedding, which he did. And, and, and later that day, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> later that day, little Kenny gets on the school bus, he took his seat as usual, but this time he, he didn't wait to get picked on, he just smiled and yelled, hey fellas, it's Milk Duds today. <laughs> Ken, I want you to know we had a big debate about this joke yesterday, whether it would be appropriate or not, so thank you for laughing. <laughs> but how much you want to bet they never stole his candy again after that, right? But the reason that joke is funny, and thankfully it was, or that would have been a huge bomb, um, at least I hope it was funny, is because, you know, we really do like to see bullies get what's coming to them, don't we? Uh, we don't like to see people bullied, and we want to see bullies get their comeuppance. Well, today, the psalmist Asaph felt exactly the same way. He felt like uh, that he and his people had, uh, had all that they could stand of the abuse that the enemies of God were inflicting on them, and they just couldn't take it anymore. But worse than that, he felt like not only were the people of God getting bludgeoned both physically and spiritually, but that God was getting bullied too. Uh, like God was letting the Babylonians not only beat up his people, but that God's reputation was taking a pummeling in the process. That in the eyes of the world, God was looking weak and, and vulnerable and small. And like he either didn't know what was going on or, or maybe was just powerless to do anything about it. And so I invite you to join me in our psalm for today, uh, Psalm 79. And this is again superscribed a psalm of Asaph. And he writes, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem and there's no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. 
Help us, O God, of our salvation. And if you remember, salvation in the Old Testament is the Hebrew name for Jesus, so we could actually read that. Help us, O God, of our Jesus, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to to generation, we will recount your praise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So I, I know we do have some folks with us the first time uh, today. So even if this is your first time with us here, uh, or your first time maybe to plug into the podcast, uh, and you haven't been part of all that we have looked at with the psalm writer Asaph and the destruction of his nation, I think it's amply clear from the opening verses of Psalm 79 that Jerusalem had been invaded by what Asaph calls the nations, the, the Gentiles, the people of this world, uh, resulting in the utter desecration and destruction of the temple. And he's writing about seeing the people of God defeated and dehumanized and disregarded as little more than cattle to either be corralled uh, to wherever they were told to go or, or simply discarded at will by those who felt they weren't worthy of life. Uh, and to Asaph, who was writing as an eyewitness of this, this long prophesied chastening of his people uh, and of all of this death and destruction, he knew that it could only mean one thing, that in the eyes and in the sight of a wide and watching world full of saints and angels and, and derelicts and demons, this whole cosmos, that God's holy name was being defamed and his glory diminished. Did you ever happen to feel like that when you look at the world around you today? A world full of cancer, chaos, warring factions clamoring for power over each other till you wonder how much crazier this old world could actually get and like God is maybe just somehow on the sidelines. And so for Asaph in his day and for us today, this psalm is both a lament of the present state we find ourselves in, but it's also a challenge to faithful prayer for God to set things right and to bring about a greater future. And so it opens with, with deep sorrow and an unmistakable element of despair, but it closes with praise. Uh, the psalm starts with the reality of evil, but it ends with the triumph of the Messiah, not in spite of the evil, but through it. And brothers and sisters, if there was ever a time when we needed to pray the words of Psalm 79. I think that time is now. So let's just unpack this a little bit. Asaph opens his poem today with an honest assessment of what's going on in the world around him. And he said, Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. And you know, that sounds pretty grim. But truthfully, he could have written that yesterday because sadly the persecution and martyrdom of the church of Jesus Christ is more prevalent and geographically dispersed than ever before. Uh, in fact, even Newsweek, which is, is definitely not a magazine that's, that's sympathetic to our faith in general, reported in January of 2018, and this is a quote, 
The persecution and genocide of Christians across the world is worse today than at any time in history, and get this, affecting some approximately 215 million Christians worldwide. And I'll give you just a couple really brief examples that you might not have heard. Two years ago, on Mother's Day in Indonesia, an Islamic family launched a suicide bombing attack on three Christian churches that killed 10 people and severely injured another 40. Within the last 12 months, and we've talked about this a ton in Sunday school, within the last 12 months, the Chinese government has ramped up its systematic campaign to destroy church buildings and any kind of Christian-related structures, beginning with tearing down one of the world's, or one of China's rather, largest churches where 50,000 Christians worshipped every week, arresting pastors, jailing church members, so that now people going out to public worship on the Lord's Day take a small carry-on bag with them with extra socks, extra underwear, with personal items, because they can't be sure that they'll get to come back home that afternoon, but would end up in a jail cell potentially instead. In Egypt, Coptic Christian women are routinely kidnapped and forced to convert to Islam at the point of a sword or in the face of a pistol and then sold as domestic servants where they are exploited and physically abused. And, you know, when we go through those, you may say, well, well, Pastor, those are really far away uh, foreign countries. Those Christians should just pack up and and move over here to the West where they'd be safe. Uh, But it's getting not quite as safe as you may think in this side of the world. Like uh, a lady that I read about named Miss Jenny Kane, a receptionist in a British elementary school who was placed on disciplinary action and later suspended because her five-year-old daughter, not, not her, but her little girl, was talking to a classmate about Jesus. Uh, or Carolyn Petrie, a UK nurse who was suspended for offering to pray for a patient in the hospital. Uh, And on this side of the pond and very close to home, uh, three U.S. senators are on open public record declaring that holding an active Christian faith makes a judicial candidate unfit for public office. Senator Maisie Hirano of Hawaii asked a potential judge, this is a quote, she said to him on the public record, your church has taken a number of extreme positions and is opposed to same-sex marriage. If confirmed, Do you intend to end your membership with that organization, with with the church, to avoid any bias, unquote? Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse asked a nominee to a federal district court about his church. Uh, And Whitehouse begins his question on the record. He says, quote, Sir, you're a member of Falls Church Anglican. Your church bulletin says marriage is a lifelong union of husband and wife intended for the procreation and nurture of godly children, entailing God-given roles of father and mother. And your associate pastor has preached sermons on that topic that affirm that stance. Do you agree with those statements, yes or no? And I didn't think there was any religious test for office in this country. But uh, and, and my last example, Senator and presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, after a similar grilling of applicants, said that practicing Christians are, in his words, this is a quote, really not someone who this country is supposed to be about, unquote. Suggesting that a a Christian belief in the truth of the gospel uh, makes one, in his words, hateful and incapable of fairly serving all people, including those who don't share their faith. 
Uh, and believe this is not a political statement. I don't care Republican, Democrat, Independent, Green Party, whatever you want to call yourself. This is open record Senate hearings in their own words. You can go to Senate.com and, and check me out. Uh, and incidents like this, though, demonstrate how Christians are being targeted in the United States for adhering to their faith and values. And, you know, honestly, it just makes me wonder when we're going to realize that the threat of religious persecution isn't as far away from home as we may like to pretend. Okay? And we need to take a stand. We need to be vocal proponents of our rights starting today before those anti-Christian thoughts turn into actions of greater and more frightening consequence. But that, that could be a whole other sermon in itself. My point in telling you that in Asaph's point today are that God's people, because of their apathy, were being dismissed as insignificant and irrelevant. They had become a laughingstock to those around them. But I also want you to see that there's something, there's something deeper here. There's something more. Something deeper than meets the eye in the text before us. Namely, that all of this disparaging that had come about on the people was fundamentally because the people of God in the city of God were being disciplined by their God. Just like loving parents sometimes have to resort to drastic punishments to get their beloved child's attention. <coughs> Excuse me. And so Asaph says, How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Uh, pour your anger out on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. And, and so Asaph here says he, he knows and he understands that the people are under divine discipline. But then he kind of says, hey, God, look over there. Right? You know, like the a bad little boy who maybe brings home a bad grade on their report card. And he says, okay, okay, mom, I don't need the lecture I get it, but, but did you see the dent that Big Brother put on your new car Friday night when he snuck out? Right? Don't, don't look at me, look, look over there. But aren't we all like that? Like when the, the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of something, we're so, so quick to say, well, yeah, but at least I'm not like so-and-so. Man, are they messed up. Right? Those are the folks you need to punish, God, not me. Because if we're honest, it's a whole lot easier to see the wrongs of others than the wrongs for which you and I are guilty. Yeah, amen? Amen to that, right? And I, I can admit that in my own life. And you know, really, everything that Asaph said here was true. The, the pagan nations had willfully rejected God. They'd rejected his knowledge of God, and therefore they did stand accused. So, you know, it's not like Asaph is asking God for punishment on the innocent. But we need to ask, and, and Asaph and his contemporaries needed to ask, what about us? Uh, how, how does our heart look to God? What's our level of guilt? Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, when we're burdened over the obvious trampling of God's people and, and particularly the trampling of God's holy name, we should cry out to God. Uh, we should cry out for justice. This psalm invites us to do that. Uh, a prayer for justice is right and good, but it should also be accompanied by a prayer of thanks for the forgiveness that rescued us first. Because uh, after all, this psalm quite literally reminds us, as the Apostle Peter wrote, that judgment begins with the house of God. Uh, and I think Asaph got there in his thinking because he, he did say in, in verse 8, Do not remember against us our former iniquities and let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. And so it looks like after 
uh, praying that previous call to judgment that now the proverbial penny is beginning to drop and Asaph and maybe perhaps other members of that remnant people of God are now moving from consideration of their own self-interest to consideration of what their sin looked like and what a sacrilege it had been before God. Uh, and the result of that is a bit of change in tune for Asaph, or at least a, a change in his lyrics at this point. Uh, as his song moves from a cry for just judgment to a cry for personal mercy. And we all need that, right? He writes, uh, Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us. Atone for our sins for your name's sake. That sound familiar at all? Maybe a little bit like Matthew 6.13. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So, Asaph here prays on behalf of his people, but there's a problem. There's a really big problem because the place where sacrifices for sins were offered, that place of atonement was destroyed. The Babylonians had raised it completely to the ground, hence his plea, provide atonement for our sins, God. In other words, he's saying, Lord, you've got to do this because we can't. We need another way, and there isn't any other way unless you provide it. And I hope by now you've already guessed that he did do that. God did provide another way. In fact, he had always had that in mind right from the beginning. And God knew what he was doing all along. And just like today, he didn't feel any particular hurry or peer pressure or a nervous worry over what others might think about what he intended because he knew that humanity wasn't going to understand it even when it came. They were going to understand it even when they saw it for themselves at the cross. Because it's too upside down. It defies human logic. It looks like failure. It felt like foolishness. But God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. And even though your sins have brought you very low, I've got a plan to raise you up. Just not how you'd ever expect in a million years. Because I'm going to raise you up by sending down my son. And not just sending him down, but cutting him down. In his prime, cutting him down not by natural causes, unintended consequences, an unseen accident, but by active, willing, divinely intended participation that placed our precious Lord Jesus in the cruel and unfeeling hands of humanity with hearts full of hate. And, and he says to, to you and me, I'm the one who offered my back to those that beat me. And my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. And I did not hide my face from mockery and from spitting. And from the brutal teasing of the Roman soldiers and the cruel derision of my own people. <clears throat> but I did it for you. I did it to save you. And you can bet your life on it. Better yet, you can bet mine. <clears throat> because after all, it's my name that's on the line. And so with that attitude... Our Lord Jesus could stare down that cross and, and say, uh, Now is my tro soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But no, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then we're told a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there heard the voice and Jesus answered and said, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. 
Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he would do it using the self-interested hands of men like Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans so that their supposed triumph over Jesus would be used for their own ultimate defeat, for our ultimate salvation and for God's ultimate glory. Because as, as uh, James Stewart, the Scottish minister, so beautifully observed of Christ, he said, they nailed him to the tree not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God defeated. They thought they had his back to the wall pinned and helpless, but they did not know that it was God himself who tracked them down so that he did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ uh, so that we could come into his presence, so that we could meet him now at his table, so that we can worship in his name whether the world joins us or jeers us, whether they defend us or destroy us, whether they affirm us or arrest us, we can pray with holy boldness, Lord Jesus, we're your people, the sheep of your pasture. We will give you thanks and praise forever. So help us, God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake, now and forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we do <clears throat> thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus. We thank you uh, for his willingness to come into this world, uh, to live and to die and to rise again so that we could have access to your throne of grace uh, in this table of communion that we're about to receive. And so, Father, uh, we ask that you would continue to bless us, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus, uh, and asking you, Lord, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. And so come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine and ask you to pour out your spirit upon us. And upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.